when it came to racing, I was like super competitive, you know? Um, and I like, losing. Uh, yeah, when I got beat, I fucking hated it. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, didn't do well. And like, I think over the course of just that period, like cycling became my identity and, and winning became my identity. This podcast is brought to you by Trivelo Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. I'm your host, Jordan Donnelly, and on my left is former Australian Ironman champion and head coach of Trivelo Coaching, Jared Donnelly. I have never been more excited for an episode than today's episode, and it is a character in cycling who has become a a cult figure, uh, but maybe not for the reasons that you have thought of, and you might not have heard of him unless you follow a bit more of the off-road stuff, but regardless, Lockie Morton has had one of the most fascinating stories in world cycling. He was an unbelievable junior who got picked up into a world tour team when he was just 20 years old, but infamously gave away the sport and quit the world tour at a young age after feeling burnt out and completely overdone by the sport and it really wasn't what he wanted but along his journey he ended up finding his love back for it and had a has had a crazy 10-year journey of falling in and out of love with cycling figure out what he wanted and has carved the way to be an absolute pioneer for enjoying cycling in a different way and in a non-traditional way and has been really a leader in encouraging people to go find more events that they can find enjoyment in, uh, find more off-road events, more gravel riding, more mountain bike racing, which is becoming more and more popular as every year goes by. It's really important to understand the type of rider and ability he has had in his story before we start this conversation, as well as the type of things he's done with him, himself in cycling and with his profile, which has been quite incredible. He, as, as we said, he started as an absolute gun junior winning state and national titles. He signed a Garmin pro team at age 20. Uh, but then a couple of years later, he basically almost quit the sport and, and was doing a lot of things his team didn't like. And uh, where he, he went on his first adventure with his brother Gus, who was also a world tour cyclist, where they rode from Port Macquarie to Uluru, a two and a half thousand kilometer journey, which they completed in just 12 days, which averaged over 200 kilometers a day in the outback. And that story really was the start of this journey for Lockie, where he started to find that cycling there was more to cycling than just road world tour racing which is a pretty extreme thing to say his biggest achievements include winning the tour of utah in 2016 in 2017 after a few years off the world tour he got picked back up by dimension data he's ridden the volta and the giro d'italia and he now rides for ef education the last couple of years he's rode on their world tour team in road cycling uh, but this year he's finally given that away and is just focusing on off-road but outside of the, the road cycling stuff He's also attempted some unbelievable ultra feats, including he held the world record for the Everesting Challenge. If anyone doesn't know what that does, it's where you climb the equivalent meters uh, of ascension of Everest in one attempt. He held that world record when he first attempted it in 2020. And in fact, he got the world record and they told him that it didn't count because of some some sort of ridiculous rule, which kind of happens in cycling a lot, uh, where they said he wasn't reaching the peak of the mountain or something. And so a few days later, he attempted it again and got it, which is just absolutely extreme. He did it in a time of seven hours, 29. Since then, it's been broken, but he did hold the world record. In 2021, he famously rode the Alt Tour, where he rode the Tour de France, the exact stages and distances all by himself, completely self-sufficient alongside 
the actual Tour de France, and he ended up beating them to Paris by five days, which was just extreme. He was, you think about how fast the Tour de France riders go, and for him to do it solo, completely self-sufficient, meaning he was feeding himself, he was with water and food, he was sleeping on his own, he had no external support, he was sleeping in a tent, he carried all his equipment with him, and he did the entire thing self-sufficiently, just like they did back in the 1900s when the Tour was starting, early 1900s, and uh, in that in that attempt, raised seven hundred thousand dollars for World Bicycle Relief. He's also ridden a fundraiser for Ukraine, where he raised two hundred thousand dollars for them, and he rode a thousand kilometers in just forty two hours, as well as conquering the Colorado Trail, which is a eight hundred forty nine kilometer route in the mountains of Colorado, where you're averaging three thousand meters above sea level, and you ride this eight hundred forty nine kilometers as fast as you can. And he has the course record doing it in just over three days. In today's episode, we dive into his entire career, uh, all these incredible achievements. He gives us the most amazing insight into his mindset and his mindset and his personality is a thing, Dad, that we want to touch on because he is he is a cult figure in cycling, but he is just a fascinating person. He's spent a lot of hours on the bike by himself and he's a very deep thinker. He's a very interesting thinker. He has a great take on the world. And the lessons he's learned, I think, are just uh, um, an unbelievable inspiration to any athlete. And he's one of the most inspiring cyclists I've ever seen and ever probably had the privilege of talking to. Yeah, we were fortunate enough to actually have him as a part of a a local tour um, that has been held here in uh, Melbourne, the Melbourne to Warrnambool. And uh, he rode uh, for the Trivello team, which was great, which was called the Trivello EF team. Um, which we're very um, chuffed with. Chuffed with. Um, look, there's a lot, a lot about Lockie that is just unbelievable to listen to, and and he he talks like he's he's had a complete lifetime. Um, he talks like a a fifty sixty year old because he's experienced so much in his short years already as a cyclist. And and when you said that he fell in and out of love with cycling. I, I don't agree. He's always loved cycling. It's just that his approach to why he was doing it was what he was searching for. And this comes loud and clearly through the podcast. Finding out why you're doing something is going to give you the satisfaction um, to continue doing that journey. And and that's what inspires people when they hear him talk and, and look at what he's what he's doing with his writing is he's doing it because he wants to and not because he has to. Um, and one of the things he said was he's he was growing up as a teenager with s- such uh, winningness in his in his racing, he very rarely lost as a junior and and he was defined by his performance and that was the mistake he was making. So so it got to a point where no matter how many times he won, he was still not happy because he was really into himself and not and not having a relationship with anybody else except for him and his bike. And and he really turned that around and has and has, has come a full circle where he gave that gave that away because he wasn't really happy, even though he had reached the the level that he wanted to, which was world tour status, um, riding as a professional bike rider. Um, which is all he dreamt about for seven years, and then he's got there and he's realised that this, he's not happy. Um, so he's he's given that away, found out the reasons as to why he loves riding his bike, come back with a different approach, and he's such a better human being for it. And and this is really the story of 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 what we all should be trying to understand in our own little world as to what 
inspires us to do what we do and getting the reason of why you do it is going to be so valuable to enable you to enjoy what you're doing for forever um so if you if you if you can get the reason of what is making you feel like you want to do something whether it's be a runner or a swimmer or a or a a good dad or whatever you've just got to understand at some point what makes yourself tick and and what gives you satisfaction and for him he just loves riding his bike That, that is the bottom line he's more happier in his own skin if he's just on his bike and of course he understands that he has to have relationships now to allow him to do that so he's got better at that he's a very shy person um, who, who you know who who's would rather not say anything he'd rather just listen and watch um, and and perform um, but he's, he understands now that that's not all that happens in life you have to actually have to have relationships to share your experiences with and and I think he does this really well and he's really taught himself you know how to get around um, the things that were making him unhappy uh, to stop him from riding his bike and now he's found what makes him happy to ride his bike and and I think it's a really good uh a really good lesson to us all and even me at my age I'm I'm inspired by listening to him um, and I can't wait to see the next part of his journey because it's not over yet Um, he's still got a contract with EF education yet he's doing alternative events and you know the off-road season's looming for him and he's training with a coach now and and I just I just think it's it's just a great story. This was a monster episode and for good reason. We were on edge for every second waiting to hear what would come out of his mouth next. And the the things he's done and the ultras he's done, the events he's done and how he's gotten through them uh, are, just, are just absolutely gripping and they're hard to comprehend, to be honest. And that's why we actually have spent a lot of time on this intro. I know we pr- you probably want us to get to the episode, but we really wanted to paint the picture of who this guy is if you didn't know him and really set up uh, the context of this conversation because he's just a fascinating character and what he's achieved is uh, incredible so far and the mindset it took to be able to do what he's done um, is so insightful and worth listening to so we hope you enjoy this monster conversation it's very long and it was very fun to um, do and very fun to talk to Lockie so here is the episode with Lachlan Morton we can't wait for you to hear it. Lock. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, mate. We uh, we normally ask athletes uh, what session they did today. That's kind of our first question for the podcast. Oh, yeah. But uh, with you, well, I mean, you, today you I did yeah. about three hours, give or take, on the bike. Um, it was like a bit of a last-minute uh, switcheroo. I did some uh, efforts yesterday that were supposed to like – kind of finished me off um but i still felt like i had a bit more in the tank so we kind of devised a bit of a session this morning um i was also catching up with my first ever coach graham sears um so i went around to his place uh had a coffee and then we went and rode for an hour and a half um i was on my mountain bike he was on his road bike but we did a little road loop and then um I was doing a couple of threshold efforts, like around 15 minutes. Um, but there's no, there's no climb that long, like in town here. And I, I didn't want to go too long. So I just knocked them out like on the beach, um, did two 15 minute thresholds. And then, oh, actually the second one was a bit longer. I carried on like all the way back home. Um, but 
yeah, that was basically it. Two two threshold efforts. Just pretty. So wait, you're riding, you're riding on the sand, were you? Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's good because you can kind of um, you just like gauge the intensity. But if you're closer to the water, it's easier. And then the further you get away, the more resistance there is. You know. Um, so if you come up on like a group of walkers or something, you don't want to like you know <laughs> suck their hat off. You kind of like get up in. The <laughs> And were you sticking um, sticking to power numbers? Oh, yeah. uh, roughly. I, I mean, I wasn't like watching it. I kind of dialed in for like the first few minutes to sort of work what the the range was. Um, it's because it's it's always different. Like I was doing flat, you know, it's a bit faster. Um, so it's going to be different than doing it on a climb. Um, but, yeah, once I kind of got the feeling, I just um, I wasn't watching the – the power too closely um just kind of check it every now and then to make sure i hadn't like lost concentration too much but it, it's pretty good i i also enjoyed it because you have to like kind of focus on what you're doing a bit more um rather than just like stare at stare at the screen um so yeah like still trying to hit like a target i guess of power um but to be honest i haven't done like any steady state like threshold work yet this year that was the first session so it was kind of like to see see where i'm at with that even just to hear you doing sessions is a bit of a change for you and then we spoke to you after the warning where you said that this whole period has has been a bit different to what you've done for the last few years um yeah you you never really you never really like going for two by 15 minute efforts or or prescribed kind of sets um so what's that like doing that again now i'm enjoying it mate um i think like uh, compared to when I last um, was training under a coach, I think um, I've grown up a lot and you kind of realize that like the the sessions you're doing aren't to like impress anyone. You're just trying to get better, right? You're just sort of doing honest work. Um, so I think I used to get too involved with the ego of it um, and that's kind of like why I kind of had to separate myself from structured training a bit, um, you know, getting too caught up in in trying to be, you know, break a record every time or just like, you know, doing the work to, to like impress the coach or, you know, I don't know what really I was trying to do. Um, but, yeah, now I kind of understand and I and I have a better understanding of why I'm doing certain things. Well, I want to know why as opposed to just like, oh, I'm going to do this session for X reason. Um, I'm more like, okay, what are we actually trying to achieve here and how are we going to go about doing that? Um, so, yeah, I think now I enjoy it. Like I still, you know, like this week I've done, I will only do two sessions. Um, like with intervals, the rest is all pretty free. Um, you know, tomorrow I'll just go endurance somewhere between four and seven hours and, um, you know, head up the, the coast and see where I get. Like there's no – I have enough of that that it yeah, keeps, yeah. Being, keeps me sane. On, so, on the road Yeah, I guess long, long-winded way of saying like it's just a nice change and um, – you know, occasionally being accountable is a good thing. You know, it's it's a, sorry, Jordan. I'm gonna we're gonna do this all all 
podcast, I reckon, trying to uh, get our questions in over the top of each other. But uh, it, look, I'm so excited to have Lockie on. And uh, and look, just watching your career over the journey, um, it's almost like you, you've done a full circle where you started with the intensity and the competitiveness of an absolute beast who just could not get enough of it. And then almost you almost went a complete dif- different direction where you, you just wanted to ride your bike and and not be dictated to by this session or that power or but just the fun of riding your bike and it's almost like you feel like you've you've done both of those and now you're ready for an, a new chapter is is that kind of where you feel you're at yeah i think i'm just trying to find i mean you're always striving for that balance right um i think now that i'm a bit older i realize that there are still things I'd like to do competitively racing um, that like, you know, that window doesn't stay open forever. Um, And I'm in a position where I can still kind of chase a few of those goals. Um, And they're all goals that I've just set myself for my own personal reasons, you know, like um, I know now I don't, I don't have to go and race. Um, like it would be easy to just go and ride ultras and do adventures full time. Um, and you know, at some point I don't know, I will do that. Um, but yeah, I think like just understanding like myself a bit more, like, and I know if I, if I stopped racing competitively now that I would still have questions in my head, like of like, you know, what if I'd done this? What if I'd done that? Um, and just kind of, I want to make sure they're all put to bed before I'm done, you know? Um, like, because otherwise, you know, you have that question forever. Um, and yeah, I think like through, through the experiencing of not like the experience of not just pursuing competitive racing, um, I'm just able to like enjoy the whole the process of it, you know. I'm very aware that like it's a real privilege to be able to train and do all that full time. So, um just kind of making use of you know the the opportunity I have more than anything. Previously said that racing can bring out the worst side of you, the side that you or the version that you you typically don't like about yourself almost that obsession. Um, that might have been a few years ago, and so you're kind of saying now you've matured a bit, and you you can you can now race again and have these goals without tapping into that version of yourself you don't like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so far so good. Never say never. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, no, I think, um, like I said, because I enjoyed the experience, and I think I have enough perspective on. Like, I don't. I don't judge myself off of the results I get now, you know, like I I don't attach too much of my worth to that. Um, So I'm able to, to not like pour every single part of me into like pursuing a single goal um, and have it, you know, be the be all and end all and, you know, at the expense of everything else. Um, I think like, you know, initially early when I was 
racing, I mean, probably from the age of like 13 um, all the way through until my early 20s. Um, like I had that very obsessive personality and like training, racing, that that was it for me. Um, and like, you know, I think in some ways at that point in my life getting to the top level of racing, like that served me very well. And um, there was a lot of like kind of reinforcement of that behavior, you know, because you like winning races and getting patted on the back. And then I had to, I had to like come to my own realizations on like, I can remember like having really great results and then, you know, the same night you're just in the hotel by yourself and miserable, you know, cause you're like, I really don't have anyone else. Um, and so like slowly coming to that realization that like I need more in my life than results to fulfill me. Um, so I feel like I've developed enough outside of racing and, um, you know, have enough relationships and people around me that I'm, it would be hard for me to be drawn that far into it again, you know, um, like it, it would be really obvious to me now if, uh, you know, I was getting. To understand crazy. you a little bit now and I, I really feel we need to go back backwards a bit and just take us into what you saw Lockie as a teenager. What was the mindset he had? when he had this unbelievable desire to be competitive and be the best cyclist you could possibly be at 13, 14, what, what were you, what were you thinking like? What was your mindset like then? And, and, and explain to the listener kind of how, how that's progressing. I mean, I started cycling cause my brother was doing it and um, I was just copying what he was doing cause he's the older brother. So like, you know, like, Oh yeah, bikes are cool and I'll do that. And then, we had like a good cycle club here and yeah, initially it was just like race on Saturday, do a handicap, like after playing soccer in the morning or whatever, there wasn't much to it. Um, and I just enjoyed the, the racing and the atmosphere and like had friends there and it was just like another sport. Um, like at that point I still, I did some triathlons actually and like, you know, played rugby at school believe it or not um but like yeah just you got, like you got the frame for it don't you yeah i was that i was the same size then um <laughs> but then yeah like i think when we went on a family holiday to europe uh in 2003 and we saw like a stage or two of the tour and then i kind of realized i was like oh wow this is like a whole thing um and something just like clicked in my head and I was like, oh, that's what I'm going to do. And I guess it's weird now upon reflection at the time. Um, I don't know. Like, I think I had really good supportive parents who like any dream you had was possible. And I just believed, I was like, all right, that's what I'm doing. There's no plan B. Like I'm just, that's what I got to do. And then um, I had like a, a really good coach and basically just took whatever he prescribed me and then just added like another half onto it. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to be, you know, I want to be better than that and I can handle it. So I'm going to do it. So, you know, by the time I was like 15, I was riding probably 30 hours a week yeah, and going to school. Crazy. Um, and 
just like really that's all I was doing, you know, like because I'd wake up at 4.30, train 5 to 8 and then like rush to get to school on time and then um, go, go to sleep at school. Will come to like, yeah, <laughs> sleep. Well, it was good once I got to like year 11 and 12 and you had the free periods. I was like sleep a little bit. <laughs> Um, and then, yeah, like mum would come to pick me up. Instead of picking me up, she'd just bring my bike and then I'd just ride home. Um, so I was just like, that's what I was doing, you know? And like you'd win like a state title and then like that was a big thing. And then you're like, oh, wait, I'll win a national title. And then like it just built like that. And to, for me, like the, there was never any um, feeling of like, I never took like two seconds to like pat myself on the back because I was always like, well, none of this is done until I'm a professional in Europe, you know. Um, So, yeah, I I like had a pretty – I mean, it's a weird thing because like there's a lot about that mindset that I still employ some of it, you know, because I think it's like there is some of it that is useful Mm -hmm. um, in that like setting goals – um, you know, kind of prioritizing yourself a little bit. Um, like sometimes that is necessary. Um, but you know, I definitely was on the extreme end of that. Yeah. Um, and you know, like, I mean, I still like had good friends at school and like, you know, did a lot of things that kids do but it was always underridden by like i oh, know i'm gonna go training i've got to race like um there's a bigger there's a bigger goal here um so yeah it's it's uh it's funny to think back at that like me being in port macquarie telling like my high school teachers that it didn't matter because i was gonna race him but yeah like that was yeah, that, that's, I guess. And like I was, um, when it came to racing, I was like super competitive, you know. Um, and I like, losing. Uh, yeah, when I got beat, I fucking hated it. <laughs> like <laughs> um, didn't do well. And like I think over the course of just that period, like cycling became my identity and, and winning became my identity. Mm-hmm. Um, so... That I think at that some point when I attached all my self worth to that, then then it became unhealthy, you know. Mm. Um, I don't want to skirt skim over though that detail of the obsession you had, especially riding three hours before school every day as a fourteen year old. You know that's not that's not normal, and um, but it got you to where you wanted to be because you're on the world tour at twenty nineteen twenty and it's what made you one of the best young cyclists uh, in the country. How did that shape your development? You know, getting up every day by yourself, self-motivated, self-disciplined, um, you know, isolated rides for three hours in the dark. Um, I know you've spoken about, you know, watching the sunrise every morning. It's a pretty funny experience for a teenager to do every day for all those years. There was obviously that unhealthy obsession side to it. Um, but how else did that shape your development and kind of the person you are now? Um, I think I'm still able to work pretty hard, um, you know, and like I don't need all all the motivation 
I need to be slowed down. I don't need to be motivated to go and get out and do it. Um, I think like a lot of the experiences I had, like you said, like riding, being able to like every training session, I would do a lot by myself. Um, so you're kind of creating these rides and experiences every morning that you kind of have ownership of um, that like, you know, it was strange to get to school and like you felt like you'd already kind of had this whole day and no one else has done anything. Um, and like I definitely still enjoy that aspect. Like I, I've carried that over in that like I like having ownership over your own ride because you can go and create any experience you want. You know, it could be, you know, a horrible, <laughs> you know, experience of like breathing through your eyes, doing VO2 efforts, but it could also be like, you know, um, watching the sunrise in a spot you haven't and riding a different road, getting a coffee somewhere. And like, you know, it, it's just an experience that you own. And it's like, you get to create one of those every day. Um, so I definitely still have taken that from that period of time. Like that kind of taught me that like, if you're, if you're willing to like get past that first 15 minutes at 4.30 AM, that sucks to get out of bed and like <laughs> get the shoes on and then get out the door. Like once you're out the door, it's like always worth it. You know? Did you miss many days? How many days would you miss? Oh, mate, none. Barely any. Yeah. You know, like, I think there was one, I got like Ross River virus when I was young. And I think that's the only time I ever had more than a week off, you know. Um, but no, I was very like, and I also grew up in a house. So, like, my brother was doing a similar thing. Mm. Um, my parents are very like, they, I mean, they're still up at like five in the morning. <laughs> like getting ready and like I don't know it, it wasn't like abnormal yeah um, yeah household <laughs> were you riding with your brother in any of those days or you go separately or was it too, you're too competitive no, for each we, other we'd go separately yeah we were too like um, competitive and <laughs> I mean he was like also I think he's two years older than me so he was stronger than me um so like he was doing his thing, I did my thing, and and then like we had like a group, we'd meet like probably twice a week. We'd probably do that together, um, but no, we never we never really trained together unless like, see as he was taking us motor pacing or like something out of the ordinary. But mainly we were both just kind of like grinded away by ourselves. As a fourteen year old, he's a sixteen year old, obviously physically stronger. When you were sixteen and he was eighteen, were you very similar? Did you catch up? Were you equal in ability? Uh, it probably took me till I was like 17 or 18 till I kind of got to where he was at. Um, my whole like mindset was like, oh, I just got to beat whatever he'd done at my age, <laughs> you know? So like if he won a state title when he was 12, I'm going to win two and then like, you know, um, trying to like validate myself in that way. Uh, but no, he would always like, he would always show me that he was stronger than me. 
you can definitely say that in every film you made as, as well. That still carries on to, yeah. to how old you are. And I, I think like in terms of the both of us, like he had um, more natural ability than I have. Had. Um, he was like a, he was a beast. Um, but yeah, I just kind of kept chipping away at it. <laughs> so you achieved your first part of your dream and you get on mm. to a world tour team at, wait, I think you were 20 or 19. Yeah. Yeah. What, yeah, 20, I think. What was it specifically about that first year on the world tour that, um, and I'm really careful using this word, but that you resented so much because I know that there was probably, or I'm guessing there was probably a bit of guilt about the fact that you weren't enjoying it, but you, but it was everything you kind of wanted and you, you really weren't having a good time. Uh, yeah, I think it was um, probably more like, it just became a reflection of myself, you know, because I'd spend all that time getting there and then you get there uh, and then you kind of already lose a bit of purpose because you're like, all right, well, I'm here now. Um, I should be like fulfilled and I'm not. And then you kind of have to like reflect on yourself and you're like, well, why? And then you're like, ah, oh, well, because I don't have many friendships, <laughs> you know, I'm like on the other side of the world from anyone I really know like barely speak to my parents, um, you know, all those things that like kind of came as a product of this singular focus and then achieving the goal and then, you know, not being fulfilled and then taking stock and then being like, ah, shit, there's actually a lot about me that is unfulfilled, you know, um, and kind of realising that even though like initially in that first year it's like, okay, you kind of switching lanes into world tour speed. So like you do get your head kicked in a bit. So you're already like a bit down and then you, you kind of go back to that, like, you know, um, that idea that all your self-worth tied up in the results. So like you kind of get lost in that. You're like, ah, oh, shit, I don't have these results to like grab onto to like, um, you know, make me feel good. And then, so then I just kind of switched and it was like, oh, once I get results, it'll sold itself out. And then I started getting results like at the end of that first year and then still felt the same way. And I was like, okay, something's like not right here. Um, and it was actually at the end of that first year that Gus and I uh, did like a long ride to Uluru. Uh, and then that like, that was kind of the, tipping point I think when like I was like all right I need to actually change something here in my life um and then that kind of resulted in me taking like a very different path um that yeah I I mean I'd never set out to I mean I was just my idea was I'll just keep going till I win the tour but then like (laughs) that definitely Took a bit of a right turn there. Right turn is an understatement. It went it went a completely <laughs> different uh, journey, which I'm sure you're grateful for now about yeah. how it went. Um, yeah. There, if anyone hasn't seen the thereabouts films, um, they are absolute must watch for any cyclist. Um, it's that first one would you'd say a very yeah, like you just said, a tipping point in your career and your life where you've come home 
and it was preseason, supposed to be preseason, yeah. and you've done your own training camp with your brother Gus, and you guys rode from Port Mac to Uluru together, um, and that probably started making a name for yourself in in the alt cycling world. Mm. Um, and, and talk to us about that tipping point, and um, I could you fill in the details of? I think you you'd emailed home and said you want to quit, um, and yeah. And then your brother talked you out of quitting because he'd done the same thing a couple of years ago. Talk us through that part of the story. Yeah. Uh, it's like 10 years ago now, so it's a little vague. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, basically I decided I was done with it. And then, yeah, Gus had been like kind of helping me because he he'd at that point left the sport. Um, so he was very aware of like – you know, the different thoughts. He's kind of like, see out, see out this time you have. I think I had a two-year contract. So, and then, you know, I was going to be back for the off-season and we were like, why don't we go and just do something totally different? And then that just turned, I mean, we didn't know how else to really spend time together apart from going for a ride. Um, so then I was just like, well, where's somewhere epic we can ride? And we just put this ride together very last minute and invited a couple of people last minute um, to drive like a camper trailer and then we just headed off. Um, and I think uh, like there was a number of things. I think Gus being in a very different stage of life um, but then us both being able to like share this bond over bikes uh, and then just like, I mean, before that, riding was always like a session, right? You were always trying to achieve something towards the goal of racing well and then this didn't make sense from a training perspective remember the coach i had at the time was like pissed and um like it it wasn't like the right thing to be doing you know before your second world tour season or whatever um in december but yeah that's why i loved it and then like i don't know it just like i had ownership over what I was doing a bit, like I decided to do it. There was no reason to it. And then I think just like the experience that came out of that, of like the ride element became secondary to like the experience, like the the places it took us, the people we met, um, the like kind of reflection on yourself and like, you know, that, that amount of time just kind of riding long straight outback roads like is a lot of time for like introspective kind of thoughts and um yeah I just had this this experience in like it was only a two-week period um uh, but like it just really shifted my thoughts on like bikes and I realized it wasn't like cycling I resented it was just the way I was approaching it you know and all of that was more a reflection of me not the sport um so that kind of jolted me to be like i need to take a different approach um so yeah that was like the catalyst for everything that's happened the 10 years since it it really identified in your mind didn't it that you still loved riding the bike that that's the bottom line you you still had a passion for riding your bike it was just your attitude and your approach to what was the purpose of of 
of yeah totally and i I mean i think before that i thought i was burnt out on the bike and then i realized that i hadn't even scratched the surface you know like i'd explored like one percent of what the possibilities with cycling are you know uh even though i'd ridden all around the world and raced like a whole bunch of different things like um i've realized that i was like ah i've only experience a bike in one way there's no way you can spend your whole life riding bikes and not be burnt out on it it's just um that variety right and and finding different different pursuits and motivations that keep you fulfilled um so yeah you went on to do another one in Colombia, and and for those listening you've just got to watch these uh videos it's it's just unbelievable viewing and the 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 people you meet and the the roads you ride on and the altitude you're at and and the conditions that you and look you guys at the Uluru it looked like you just non-conformed you threw your helmets off you just wore cycling nicks with no tops and and you were just you know in the breeze sort of uh, having some fun on your bikes like like you were both you know 15 16 year olds again and sitting behind the the camper van doing 60 k's an hour for 300 k's one day and uh, you know stuff like that just seemed like that was a game-changing moment for you and and the Colombian experience and you know having to I remember seeing your rest day was like 2,000 meters of climbing and, and 100 130k day and it wasn't really a rest day but you went along with it anyway and so these experiences seem to be the catalyst for you to find a different way of looking and getting your love for cycling back would that be true yeah 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 for sure um like i I kind of discovered that i was really enjoying that aspect of it and then it was a process of me trying to convert that passion back to racing um and like working out how i went how i could go about like still i guess being a professional athlete um, because I, I knew it, that's the life I wanted that, that lifestyle is, you know, I wanted to be out my bike every day and probably more so than ever at that point. Um, and then working out how I could still have these experiences, still maintain a level in racing. And then that was a whole journey in itself, you know? Um, but I think it, from that point on, I could lean on the fact that I just loved riding my bike, like ever since then. Um, like for me, it's never going to be an issue of being motivated to go on my my bike and ride. You know, like for me, still the ideal day is to like wake up, have no commitments outside of riding, and then I'll be able to spend the whole day out riding. You know, um, and that all comes from the fact that. You know, I have a passion for it that doesn't involve like a a result having to justify me being out there. Um, it's just more of a pure love for for pedaling and being outside. So, um, yeah, I think like those those trips were like the the starting point for that, but then even out of those, like the way I trained and the way I approached racing was shifting pretty massively um, just outside of the films, but during that like period of time. 
your passion for it is infectious. And if you ever want motivation to go for a four, six or eight hour ride, you just watch these and you just cannot wait to get on your bike. Um, you touched on before the fact that you struggled with a bit of an identity crisis, I'd say, in that all you knew about yourself was was cycling and performance and then you get over to Europe and you're, you're alone and you've got nothing outside of cycling. And uh, in the films, you actually say that um, in that year leading up to the ride to Uluru with Gus, you'd spent a total of 12 hours together or something in, in a whole year. Um, how much did that trip change things you value outside of cycling, especially your relationship with him? Obviously, you got to spend a lot more time together in the years post that got on Jelly Belly, a pro cycling team together. Um, yeah, how much did that shift, I guess, the way you see the world and, and yourself? Um, I mean, I think out of that process, I just re- valued relationships a lot more in general. Um, you know, I think like before that, I just had the tendency, it's pretty stubborn and, and a loner, I would say. Like I, I enjoyed just doing things my own way, working it out myself and very rarely asking for help. Like I didn't like to have to rely on anyone. Um, And I think like just through that process of, you know, spending more time with the people that you love and realizing that like those are really the interactions and moments of your life that like mean the most Um, and then shifting your priorities to be like, well, I need to, I need to actually put time into this myself, <laughs> you know, like it's not, it can't just be this, this one sided thing. So I think, yeah, like, you know, and that, that also went for at that point, um, Rachel, who's I've been now been married to for eight years. Um, we, she was like, Oh, we'd only been seeing each other maybe a, a year, maybe not even, um, at that point. And, just kind of realizing that like that should take priority over everything else um, because that's ultimately what was making me the most happy um, was having these relationships. So I think, yeah, I just valued relationships more, I guess. There's a great story. I wonder if you can tell it, um, the specifics of it where you were actually in Europe and you um, you wanted to come home and see Rachel because you were just kind of miserable and you just flew home mid mid-season um and then flew back to europe the night before a race and and talk us about your emotions then and uh did you have any guilt about just leaving and and sneaking off the year after i did that ride i still have one more year on garmin um and that was probably the lowest point for me that next year like kind of feeling stuck in it and uh i really resented having to train and race and live there at that point um I was also like pretty young and immature. Like ultimately I wasn't in, you know, there's worse places to be stuck and worse things to be doing. But at that point it was like I needed, I'd already decided I wanted to get out of it and I kind of felt trapped in it. Uh, and yeah, actually I remember that specific day. I was out right. I was attempting to go do like a training session and then just canned it halfway through and stopped it. This little, bar which was the only place i could go to get wi-fi and i just like booked a flight for like that that night i think you know just went home and packed like a backpack and then just caught a taxi to i think i caught the train to barcelona and then just 
got on a flight home. Um, turned up at Rachel's like share house in Sydney <laughs> a couple of days later. Um, but I think that's kind of just going back to what I was saying before. It's just like I'd, I'd come to that realization that um, I wasn't putting my energy into the things I needed to be. So I started to, that was my way of prioritizing. It was pretty imbalanced at that point. But um, I think I spent like five days in Sydney and then caught a flight back. And I remember, I think I got back to my apartment at like midnight or something. And then I had to get up and go to, it was like Romandy, Romandy or one of those like hard early season Swiss races. And I just went and I was rooming with Rowan, Rowan Dennis. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just like, I was like, oh, I had to tell someone, you know, and I was like, Man, I haven't been riding. I was in Australia two days ago. Like, what did he say? He was just laughing. He's like, you're, you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah. I mean, like, I don't know. In, uh, in my head with the way I was feeling and like, it was, it feels, it feels like it was very justified. Um, Obviously, like on reflection, it's pretty irrational, and like there's probably better ways to go about it. But at that point, I didn't have many ways to. um, I mean, I wasn't experienced enough with my own emotions, and (laughs) you know, I couldn't. It was the only thing I could do. So yeah, yeah. 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 Okay, so there's there's a bit of a gap in the story where um, throughout those these next few years, you're doing you're finding a lot of love for the adventure stuff, but you're still on a, on a pro team. So you, you, le- you leave Garmin and you go to um, Jelly Belly and you and your brother start riding together. Then you win the Tour of Utah. Um, you're riding unbelievably again. Um, and then you get picked up by Dimension Data. Um, and things are going really well on the roads. But where were you at mentally? Um, and had, you know that year with Jelly Belly, or those couple of years, did you find love again for road racing and you, you were keen to get back into it and give it, give the world to a good crack what happened there yeah i mean i spent two years with jelly belly um like you said i was with my brother um and that kind of came about because I, I knew i knew i wasn't ready to stop um not i think mentally at that point i could have stopped um and like i mean racing wise and gone and done something else and probably would have been okay with it. But I, mean, I wasn't ready to stop in that. Um, I mean, I don't have any other skills, <laughs> you know. Um, I had like a high school education and um, I'd been pretty committed to it. So I was like, oh, this is the one way I know I can make an income. Um, and, it, you know, like Rachel had committed to coming to live with me. Like there's a lot of like things that I was like, look, I need to, race another year here just to work out what my next move is um and gus was also at a similar position with the job he was having he wanted to move on but wasn't sure what he's going to do so i was like why don't you come and race and then we basically just asked any team asked any team in the u.s um like any team that was willing to take gus as well as me um then we would sign for them and Jelly Belly took us on. And, uh, yeah, it was just a totally different environment. Like Danny Van Hout, who runs that team, um, 
he kind of runs it like a family, you know, it's very small. There's only, I think at that point we were like 10 riders. Um, and then Matty Rice, he's like the other director there. And that's kind of it. It's just us and going on the road, going to host housing and racing around the States. And just through being in that environment um, and taking that year to kind of realize what a privilege racing professionally was and just like assessing where things had gone wrong for me in terms of like what my motivations were and I basically just took a season of being like I was sort of racing I mean I was racing a full season but I wasn't fully focused on it um and then just through the process of of doing that and spending time with people who just love cycling for cycling's sake uh as well as doing you know more stuff off-road just in training and whatever I just kind of hit this nice spot where I knew I wanted to like race hard again and train hard again and get to a point where I could like get back to like a really high level and at least have the opportunity to like race the world tour again. And be, even if I got to that point and I said no, like, and then I could be like, okay, I can put it to bed. Um, but that was the the motivation for my second year. And I was also like really like, I mean, I wanted to do it for myself. And then I also wanted to do it for all of like everyone at Jelly Belly because they put so much belief in me and just gave me time to do what I wanted to do. And then, you know, they brought Gus on and like just um, they became like a family, you know. And so we kind of all clicked that second year and um, we were like, all right, we'll, we'll take on anyone anywhere. And we won a shitload of races. Um, and, you know, it was a really um, just amazing thing to be a part of. Uh, like I was lucky enough to be the guy who got to finish it off all the time and like win a bunch of races, but we just had an amazing crew that year and it was just impossible not to be in love with racing in that environment, you know, um, because like you would race hard, have a plan and we'd all have a few beers and then like, you know, come up with another stupid idea of like how we're going to win this next race. And then like, you know, it's just like very, um, it just reminded me of, of like being a kid driving around Australia to different races and like just like there was no pressure, there was no ego. It was just like, all right, um, like no one's making much money. Like the, the, anyone who's doing it at that point was doing it for the passion, you know. So, um, yeah, that's that's how I like kind of, I guess, fell in love with road racing again was through that, pro- like that specific group of people. Um, and during that time, like, yeah, my passions outside of that also flourished because, like, Danny just gave me the, the freedom to go and do whatever I wanted to do off-road and made it easy in terms of, like, if we were doing a ride that was sponsored by someone different, he was just like, look, it's a totally different thing, doesn't matter. It just made it all really easy. Um, and, yeah, like, at the end of that, after winning uh, Utah, then um, there was opportunity to race with Dimension Data and then like 
once you had the contract on the table, it was like, all right, now I need to decide if like mentally I'm ready to go and do this. And um, it was a pretty big, like there was a point, a part of me that was just going to stay on Jelly Belly, you know, like because um, I was having such a good time. But then I just, I knew myself well enough at that point. I was like, there's still like a little bit of like, not what if, but just like go back, experience it on your own terms with like this new mindset and see see what it's like, you know. Um, and it's like a two-year commitment. Like Rachel is going to come with you to Europe. It's like the whole thing is going to be very different. Um, so I, I like I took that that opportunity to go and kind of do things on my own terms. What was it like? It was great, you know. Um, like I, I never. I had like results I was happy with. Um, the I never sh- could shift into that full killer mindset again. That I think um, not is required, but for me to like perform at that level in that specific thing, that's the mindset. I need and I wasn't willing to go back there um so yeah I had like a really good like enjoyed the time to the point where I got to the end of like those two years and was like I know I could like perform at this level at the very sustainable rate and just have like a career doing this you know I'm not going to be winning races but I'm going to be helping people to win races and like to be honest, that's a position I like better. Um, and I was very comfortable in it. Um, so it was like a very different experience than I'd had initially, you know, years before. It's, it's, a, it's a bit of a turn, isn't it? And I get the feeling that uh, your maturity as you were going through these experiences was really helping you understand that it wasn't all about results it was more about um the relationships you share those results with and that was evident with the jelly belly wasn't it that you were a a bunch of guys all with the same goal and you were you were sharing the experience and sure you might you might have been finishing the races and winning but but you were valuing the group approach of of that that relationship wasn't it that and that's what you were lacking earlier Totally. Like it was the whole thing was shared, you know, and I still remember very distinctly I won the last stage of Utah um, and you like, you cross this climb um, and descend down into Park City, uh, Empire Pass, and I was solo there. Um, so I knew I was going to win for like whatever, 10-minute descent all the way into town. And so like you could have, it's very rare you get that, like, and you're just like, I'm just going to like super tuck free wheel on my way down here. And you could like reflect on all of that. And I knew like my parents were there at the finish. Gus had like helped set me up to win. Rachel was there. And then plus like the fact it was with Danny, it was going to be the biggest result for them ever. And I was like, I don't think I'll ever top this. And well, I knew I was like, I, I, there's no, uh, there's no win I could have personally that I'd be more fulfilled with than this. You know, this is a hundred percent. 
Um, so it's very rare to ever have that experience. Maybe you'll never have that experience again, you know, um, of being so present in that moment. Um, and like you said, it was because of all the people you were sharing it with. I wasn't like, oh, shit, yeah, like kick Talansky's ass up there. Like <laughs> I didn't really care about that. Like yeah. there wasn't. Um, so, yeah, that was like a, as you said, it was it was special for like a lot of different reasons. I think you've gone on record saying that you could win a, a stage in a grand tour and it, it wouldn't top that for those reasons. And I guess you'd stand by that. Yeah. yeah. Totally. And, unless because, you want- I mean, like you, you never have that environment at an elite level. Um, it just doesn't exist. You know, like you can get teams where it's close to that and you have a really good group. And I think of all the teams, like the team I'm on now, the EF, like we have very – a very like nice relationship, but you'll never have that close knit, tight, total family, you know, um, because it's like those bigger teams are a big machine, you know, and there is, you know, 80 to a hundred employees and it's, it's, there's still an element of, all right, I'm on a contract. I'm looking after myself a bit. Um, it just exists. So, um, yeah, like even I think it would be very hard to replicate outside of that specific, you know, little magic season that we had there. With every year, you were gaining maturity, experience, and say wisdom and, and probably congruency in what you wanted and what you enjoyed and what you didn't enjoy and to the point now where you're, you're so congruent in the way you want to go about things. But that's easy in hindsight to look back and go, well, this was the answer I needed. But at the time, did you have people in your ear saying anything along the lines of you know you're wasting your talent or um or you know you should be feeling a bit more or, uh, grateful for the opportunities you have did you have any of that in your ear or in your own head uh no they're always in the comment section <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, i can't imagine you pay much attention that. to them but <laughs> yeah that's that was kind of my you know education on not paying too much attention to that yeah. um but um, no, it was always hard. It's hard. You, I wish I could say you could just block that out and be like, oh, that's just someone. Um, but it definitely, you could hear someone say that and it does make you think, you know, oh, am I wasting my talent? Am I doing the wrong thing? Um, but then you just have to lean back on like the fact that it's your life at the end of the day. And like, no one knows what makes you more fulfilled than yourself, you know? Um, and I think like traditionally, yes, every like strong, good cyclist has used their ability to compete and race others. Um, but I think that there is like, uh, an environment that exists now where you can use your talent in other ways and, like I think I've been able to have more of an impact by not pursuing racing than pursuing it, you know, like as, as an ultimate outcome. Um, but I also always thought I was like, the mo- I know like the most talented cyclist out there has never ridden a bike, you know, I'm sure there's hundreds <laughs> of project cars out there who That's just funny. never found cycling. You know? <laughs> yeah. And no one's fucking, crawl into their DMs telling them how to <laughs> <wasting their time. laughs> So, give me a break. <laughs> so, 
Uh, and we want to really start diving into kind of the impact you, you've been having with uh, all the alternative events and racing that you, you've been doing kind of since that period. So after a couple of years with Dimension, you you um, you find EF, which is a, a team that whose values that you really fell in love with pretty quickly, right? Where they're, they're not just about results on the bike, although any pro team has to be about that. You, you love their value of what just cycling is. Um, and so how did that relationship form? And then what was... What was the original agreement with them? Uh, did they just say to you, we want you to go race the races you want? Did you ask them for that permission? Did it just unfold organically? Uh, it was like a real, it's a long story, but basically I had a relationship with uh, with Rafa through, they'd like done some screenings of the films we'd made. Um, and that, I think they were also at that point my shoe sponsor. Um, so like I had a dialogue with them. Uh, and Gus and I had actually come up with this very, like basically the idea that is now like the alternate calendar and worked on pitching it to like sponsors before um, and nothing had come of it. And then this deck that we had had like found its way around and, and like gone through Finney's agent somewhere and then like basically got pitched back to me through Rafa, and I was like, oh, I know this. Like, this is it. This is, yeah, this is a good idea. <laughs> I think someone should do this. Um, and I mean, like, the credit to them was they were actually going to bring it to life. And they, I think they'd been sponsoring Sky up until that point. Um, and then they wanted to do something different. And like I said, at that point, um, I'd gotten very comfortable like racing the way I was and I was like, I can go and do one of these trips with Gus every year. And like, it's, it's kind of like a nice little thing I got going on. And then they had, there was this opportunity to go and race um, still world tour, but then like take on a whole bunch of other things. And I remember like the conversation, cause it was also like kind of a risk um, because like at that point, it was like, well, what if I go and race an ultra and then I'm just slow forever, mm. <laughs> you know, and then I can't race and then like everyone's sick of this idea after six months and then like that was that, you know. Um, so there was like a degree of risk that – but I, I was also very aware. I was like this opportunity won't come on twice. Um, so, yeah, basically Rafa got me on to EF um, with the idea that I was going to be the the guy to like take on these other races, uh, and yeah, I kind of like I just grabbed it with two hands because I was like, this is a very unique opportunity, and I really want to make this. I want to like prove this concept, you know, as well as like enjoy all these different experiences I can have racing um but i was like i really want this to work because i think this is a better a better format for professional teams um so yeah that that's sort of how that like opportunity came up and in that first year i think we raced uh unbound was our first race and then i did the uh gb duro which was like an ultra race in the uk and then leadville i can't remember what else we did but basically it wasn't like huge 
um, and I was still racing like a full road calendar. Uh, but it was great. We just had like a really passionate group of people um, within the team. The team really like like grabbed the idea and ran with it too, um, which was important. It wasn't just like, oh, they're trying to keep a sponsor happy. They were like, no, they actually bought into the idea and then we had a good group of people at Rafa and then um, Housie was on board with it too. So I had like a bit of a partner in crime and, um, yeah, we just kind of went for it. And I I like, you know, that season um, was – you know, one I'll always, it'll always be like a very special season because I was able to like race well on the road and then still do all this other new stuff and kind of prove that idea that I had that it was possible to race well, be happy and, and use the bike to also explore um, all in one season, you know. I was going to say, did you find in some of those, when you got back onto the World Tour races, you'd done a whole lot of endurance stuff uh, with the old alternative style of mountain biking and, and gravel riding. How did you cope with the intensity? Did your body, did you quickly get back to speed with just a couple of little races here and there? Or was it, was it you thinking, God, I've done so much endurance here that I just don't have that, that uh, quick reaction to. Yeah, it didn't um, like, I think at that point, like even since then the world tour racing has become more explosive. Um, so at that point it's still explosive, but it wasn't quite as like polarized as it is now. And I could get away with it a lot more. Um, and I found that like, because I was always used to doing such big volume anyway, cause I just like being out on my bike, you know, like I would still do 12 to 1200 to 1400 hours a year on my bike so it wasn't like new for me to go and do big long things um so i I, for whatever reason i managed it really well and that was the first year i'd kind of stopped working with the coach um because it was just it was gonna be too hard to (laughs) basically work out how it worked you know like there wasn't really someone there who had experience of like, okay, how long do I need to rest after an ultra? You know, like I think the, if you looked at like the numbers of it, I think the first day or days, I think of 30, 30 something hours of like GB Giro, the TSS was like 1600 or something. Like, and they were just like, oh, you're just ruined for the year now. But then like, you just back it up the next day and you can do it again. So then like, like, oh, well, maybe you're not. You know, and then I could turn around from that. And then I think I won a stage at Utah like a month later or something. So, like, you could still, like, it was possible. Um, but it just, for me at that point, it involved just a lot of, like, feeling it out, <laughs> you know. Um, and I did use, like, um, like, racing as my intensity. So I'd always just find, like, whatever the next demand was, I would just approach that and not think beyond that. So I'd be like, okay, now I'm switching from trying to be, you know, I have like a two week runway to an ultra. So I'm like, all right, well, I'm not going to be able to just cram a whole bunch of stuff in, but I should probably go on two really long rides and make sure 
I know how to set up camp quick and like do those things that I'm like, all right, that's my focus now. And then once that's finished, I'll be like, okay, the next race is Leadville. That's six hours, a couple of thresholds. Like, and then I would just focus it like that and then find local crits or something to just kind of like be the kick up the ass before I had to like get out there and do it properly again. So, um, yeah, I, I think in hindsight it was all – I was making it up as I went along, but it 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 worked out <laughs> weirdly. Our theory would would be that you could only do that because of the insane base you had, the insane endurance you, you, that you mm. were trained for. You know, if someone didn't wasn't yeah. doing the hours you were doing, they couldn't just step up for a couple of weeks into a into a specific event. Would you agree with that? Um. <sighs> Yeah, maybe. I think like it it always helps to have a really big aerobic base. I think you can be most flexible from that. Um, and I've always been someone who I adapt like really quickly to intensity because of that because I don't do it all the time. So like it's such a stimulus that your body adapts quite quickly. And when you take the, the foot off the gas of the volume, um, like your body freshens up quite quickly and then you're pretty – moldable i think um but i also think that like it wouldn't be an absolute requirement um because there's so many ways to approach it it's just a matter of understanding how your body works um because and especially with ultra stuff it's so um it's so little of it depends on like physical ability not little. I mean, it, it, of all the disciplines, it counts the least. Um, it's so much about like your mindset and your experience and the way you execute the race. Um, so there's a lot of like wiggle room for, you know, not ideal preparation and that kind of thing. And you can get away with just like how you, how you approach the race itself. Um, and then, yeah, understanding, I think, for then going back to shorter stuff, it's like looking more so at what the demand is for that particular event. And then you're like, okay, well, this is the time frame I have. So what's going to be the most bang for my buck? And for me, that might be something totally different than the next person. But I think if you approach it in that way, you can be – it's very hard to be – well, I think it's impossible to be a hundred percent like prepared for everything, but I think it's really possible to be ninety percent prepared for mm-hmm. a lot of things. And it has to be said that you, in that period, I mean, you did the Vuelta in twenty seventeen with um, Dimension, and then in twenty twenty you did the Giro with EF. So in the middle of all this, you know, you're you're doing a Grand Tour, which is just remarkable. How is that experience doing? three-year grand tour within all these races? I guess like the the Vuelta was still, I was very much a road mm-hmm. program. So that was like kind of straightforward, um, except everyone got sick. And I think after like, was that like eight days or something, we were down to three riders. <laughs> and, and then, so it was a weird experience for that. Um then that was my first grand tour. So like my, my whole, I didn't really have my, any objectives, just like kind of getting <laughs> to it. Um, 
uh, like we it was pretty strange. We had this huge team bus still, and like three guys hanging out on there. Um, but yeah, then like doing the the Giro that was off the back of I did an ultra in Spain called Badlands. It's like seven eight hundred k gravel event. Um, I think there was a pretty quick turnaround there, maybe three weeks. Um, and it was at the end of the year. And I kind of made some mistakes in that preparation because I was too gung-ho. I think I was too, um, like, focused on proving myself to make the team instead of, um, like, being like, okay, well, if I make the team, I need to – I want to have goals for myself. I don't want to just get through it again. Um, So – I didn't allow enough recovery for that specific like Jira. Um, so, I mean, it was still a really cool experience to do. Like I could do my job and it just, I didn't have any personal ambitions in it, which um, I think if you're going to commit to being at that high level, you still need to have some, you know, goals in there to like really, otherwise you sort of like, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I mean like, I like the Giro because, uh, you know, like the transfers are long. Sometimes you don't get much sleep. Like everyone, I always do well when everyone gets slower. <laughs> you know? And I can kind of like, that's the, the way I've won all the best races I've won is when everyone gets slow enough to where I can beat them. <laughs> um, and the Giro is good like that because everyone starts complaining about like this, that. And I'm like, man, we still got like, chef cooked meal and we still got a rub like who cares we slept six hours like everything else was pretty nice um so yeah i I love the duo and like i think of all the in my head of like all the the coolest road races and like what you imagine road racing being growing up like in europe like the duo is that you know in every sense of the you know the experience it's just like the crowds, um, the stages are epic and long, like, you know, the Stelvio in the snow, like all of those things that, yeah, you, you get to, you get to live that childhood dream a lot at that race. Um, so it was definitely cool to go and do that. Um, but there was so much of, I mean, that's just the way my brain works. Yeah. You're constantly thinking about like, Oh, if I did this again, like what mistakes did I make? In, in preparation for this that I can't do exactly what I want to win this race. Um, but, I mean, to get through it, like, I'm pretty hard to kill. <laughs> so, like, there was, wasn't – there was never a, a question of whether I get through it. Um, but I think through that process, I realized that I didn't want to just get through races, um, you know, because I could. I wanted to – if I was going to be there, I wanted to be able to properly race races. I love that comment of, um, you know, we're still getting, we're still in a comfy bed. We're still getting six hours sleep because you've done so many events where you're, you're not getting that whatsoever. You're sleeping in a wet tent on the ground, like in the Alp tour, or you're, you're riding for three days straight in Colorado. And I kind of want to touch, start touching on those going. Yeah. I mean, you, I, I think you kind of, you get like um, conditioned to this idea that like everything has to be perfect in order for you to be able to, you know, perform, but I've had so many strange experiences where everything's been like, so, you know, inopportune and 
and somehow like you just end up having this amazing six hours, you know, and you're just like, oh, wow, like it doesn't, not that like everything is important, especially when it comes to performing at elite level, um, but you realize that your body is very adaptable and like you can you can approach it, you know, in a lot of different ways and still have a decent performance. And that's the mindset too, isn't it? Like you, if you've got the, the, the brain to think these things through when a, a roadblock is put in front of you like a, a long, you know, commute from stage to stage or crappy crappy accommodation, you've just got to put that to the side, don't you? And and uh, the mind is going to be more important than the physical physicalness of, of what's happening. Yeah, totally. And I mean, at that point, like all those things are being dictated to you. You don't have control over them anyway, you know. So you, all you have is your ability to to improvise and just adapt to whatever it is and then get on with it um, because, you know, the more you dwell on the things that you think are impacting you, the more they will impact you. I want to keep diving into this because what you what you do is essentially – You've, you've proven so many times how you're kind of defying training principles and you're kind of defying recovery principles. And let's, I, want to, I want to use an example like the Alt Tour where you rode the Tour de France solo completely self-sufficiently. I remember at the time, um, SBS would, would do a little preview on it uh, before each stage each night and they'd say, Here's where's Lock- here, here is where Lockie is up to compared to the, the pros. And oh, really? I was, didn't know that. Yeah, it was awesome. And I remember uh, every time you'd come on, I actually couldn't comprehend what what you were doing because it was so extreme. <laughs> I remember just going, "Something's I'm not, I'm missing something here," you know, because he's and you're riding in fucking sandals, <laughs> and I was going, "What?" <laughs> I was just going, and they would, they would describe how you it's self sufficient, so no one can help you. You're feeding yourself, you're stopping in stores to feed yourself, just like they did in 1903, and you're transferring yourself between stages, and you you beat the peloton to Paris. And the, the shoe thing is kind of what stood out for me because you were um, getting real bad knee pain in the cleats. So you, then you switched to sandals. You bought some sandals in a store and you rode on flat pedals to try and yeah. rest your knee. In those moments, um, I know you've spoken about your whoop data was saying every day just how extreme fatigue you were. And this is why I started <laughs> with saying that you kind of re- define recovery principles. How are you? How are you getting through that mentally? How are you digging deeper? Um, what is? What are your strategies? And what are you? What are you saying to yourself on those twelve-hour days? You're riding r- ridiculous times by yourself. Sometimes you were freezing cold. Your stuff was soaked from the night before when you'd been sleeping in a tent. Yeah, so what's, what's going through your head? Um, I mean, the overriding thing has to be like a constant awareness that you are there because you want to be um like that has to kind of underwrite everything otherwise it won't work um and just it, it, it you're never looking like further than the next thing whatever that is where you're going to fill your bottles and then the next thing might be all right where am i going to find food four hours down the road and then the next thing is where am I going to find somewhere to sleep um, or the next thing might be how am I going to get up over this hill like it's very like you have to just break it down to very small bits um, and you kind of realize that there's only so much like fatigue you can have that <laughs> makes sense like it, it gets to a point and it's, it's never much worse um, 
And then once you you get you kind of spend three or four days getting all the way down, and then once you kind of hit the the bottom, then your body starts to adapt and you actually it starts to get easier. Um, but it never gets to a point where like it becomes fully easy. And that's like the trick you kind of play with yourself. You like because you start to have good moments, and then you're like, "Ah, oh, I'm out of it," you know. And then you let your guard down, and then everything switches, and you feel like shit again. And then like, you know, so it's kind of. I've realized that like you, no matter what, like you, you just kind of go through ups and downs constantly, um, and your ability to like keep momentum in what you're doing kind of relies on not getting too carried away with the good and bad moments and minimizing you know those lows as as much as you can and having strategies to like pull yourself out of those harder moments um then the quicker you can turn them around the nicer the experience is um but also just the the quicker you go generally um so I'm not really on this like belief of like oh like like one of my teammates he gave me the or he recommended I like listen to the the David Goggins or that guy um who's like really like lean into the hardship or whatever and I was trying to listen to it during the ultra I just couldn't like I was just like this is just not the way I operate um not to say it doesn't work for some people, but for me, it's not about like leaning into that really difficult moment. Um, it's more just like you kind of accept it. It's there. That's your, like your reality. And then how am I going to get out of, how am I going to make this like nice as quick as possible? Um, and yeah, that's kind of, you just, you get really good at turning bad moments around quickly, you know? And then also, being aware that they are going to come and they're going to come each day and um, to not get too rattled by it each time because the more, the more you've been in those situations, the more you realize you always come out of them. Uh, but, yeah, I guess that's like the way I approach it. Um, and the strategies I use are like different uh, from time to time. Like it's not like you work out the trick to be like every time I feel shit, I need to just eat a Snickers and then I'm good. Um, although sometimes that works, you know, but like um, it's normally uh, a bunch of different things. Um, and then you, you also get really in tune with like your body and what it needs and um, like especially from like a, a nutrition and like pacing standpoint, you get very efficient at like finding exactly how to optimize a less than ideal situation um, to get the most out of yourself, you know, because like, you know, some days you might be just cruising and you're like, all right, I can, I've got a big heavy bike. So if I can just stomp over all these climbs, like above threshold, I'll keep all this momentum and like, not like you it wasn't using power, but you understand the feeling of like, okay, if I, I can push here because I'm feeling good enough and that means I'm going to go 5K now quicker for this next five hours and I'm going to be fucking way down the road and it's worth it because then I'm going to be able to sleep three hours more or whatever. Other times you might be like, well, 
I'm really on the limit here. So like if I can be just like I'll cruise the climbs and then if I can just get up above 30 k's an hour on the flat, like, you know, that's kind of a win. Um, or other times you're like, well, basically I'm so destroyed right now. If I can just keep momentum and like look around and try and find positives here and there, like that's the win. So um, it's all relative to the to the whatever situation you kind of find yourself in. Once, once your body goes into that lowest point, isn't it? It's really about problem solving your mind, isn't it? How am I going to get around this? And and you're at rock bottom, so you've, you go into survival skill mode, don't you? And you're not thinking about next week, tomorrow. You're thinking about the next five minutes. How am I going to get through this? And you're problem solving straight away. You're deciding how hard you're going to ride. You're deciding, do I need to stop and eat? Do I need to drink? And there are things that are instinctive that you're really good at, obviously, because you've been down that journey a lot. And and a lot of the people we coach are endurance type athletes, and they're going to be facing this as an Ironman triathlete or as an endurance rider who's doing a an epic, you know, three peaks, which is a four thousand meter climb. You know, you've got to go through these experiences and be ready for them. And that seems to be how you've coped better. Is okay. I know that's going to happen to me. How am I going to react? And yeah. That's a bit of Yeah, exactly. Like that's it's like inevitable, right? It happens in racing. The same the same things um happen no matter what kind of endurance activity you're doing. Uh, or even outside of that, like no matter like uh, things in life, you know, it's it's very similar to like you kind of have these it's all problem solving, basically. Um and I think that's what I enjoy the most about like the the being self-sufficient is you have so many problems to solve that no, no one problem ever becomes overwhelming really you know um like basically the things that you're kind of scared about when it comes to being you know doing self-sufficient right is like staying warm enough uh keeping yourself fed, having enough water. Um, and they're basically the things that drive the whole thing. So you kind of strip back to a very primal kind of um, needs-based. And then if you can keep those met, um, everything else that happens is all in your head. Um, and, like, you, you can create as many problems as you want for yourself uh, because, like, our brain's very good at doing that. <laughs> but... Um, kind of realizing that none of those things actually impact you at that that moment it's like okay i'm I'm not cold i have enough food i have enough water like the rest is on me in a way um so yeah it's it's all it's very um simple (laughs) in a way um all the 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 i think it gets complicated in just like filtering out all the noise in your own head right um because the tendency is when it gets really hard. Yeah. Like going back to the motivation, like that's when I say like the most important thing is the motivation has to be yourself and your choice to be out there. Cause the first thing you want to do is like blame someone, <laughs> you know? Um, Cause that's an easy one. you like, you kind of put the situation you're in on someone else. Um, and if you're in a mind space where you can do that, it's really hard to break. Um, because you can sit and like seethe and 
and like be pissed off at like the situation you're in because you're like, oh, I can just vent it all at that one person. Um, and if that's like, you know, if there's any any motivation for what you're doing that isn't internal, that will come up really quick, you know. Um, so I think like you can kind of knock a lot of that negativity on the head by just being very sure when you start, you're like, this is, I'm doing this for myself, right? And not for myself, like my ego, like for myself, myself. Um, like that helps a lot. Um, and then, you know, it's like frustration, like the, the basic, like kind of that'll like cripple you because like, you know, frustrations come up a lot and you get annoyed by little things when you'll be really on the limit. Uh, but then just having the presence of mind to be like nothing good comes from being frustrated or angry. Like all it does is slow me down and make me enjoy this experience a lot less. Uh, and then I guess like beyond that, like this overriding idea that you put yourself in uh you you like to the motivation behind doing something really difficult is you know if it's like you want a pat on the back or whatever the experience is going to be hard um if you're trying to like test yourself and grow like you need those difficult moments so like kind of being aware that like, okay, it's difficult now. This is where the change happens. So I'm accepting of this. Uh, and then beyond that, you're like, well, I live a life that's like privileged enough that I have to seek out <laughs> these uncomfortable moments. You know, like a lot of people have those moments enforced on them for a lifetime, you know? And I think it's like, we, well, we, I'm, I'm talking about myself here because I can't speak for everyone, but um, I think like for myself that I, I live a life that could just be very comfortable and is 99% of the time super comfortable. Um, and like I have to seek out things that are difficult like in order to have those experiences, like that makes you really lucky, you know. So um, I think once you kind of consider all those things and you kind of make sure that you have those things like present in your mind. Um, then it's, it's, it's not easy. It's never easy. Um, but it's a lot more manageable, you know, that's an unbelievably uh, accurate, accurate description of uh, what almost everybody in the world has ever experienced, whether it's in sport or in their life journeys. Um, you you've also done a lot of things that not many people would know about where you've used your um position as a as a, a really talented bike rider to raise money for for things that are important to you and, and have a purpose um make your bike riding have some purpose not that it doesn't have a purpose that's not what i'm saying but have a purpose that can actually help others um, because it is yourself. a yeah. It's, yeah, it's a very, a very, you know, the sport we do is very, you have to be very selfish to be better at it in general terms. Um, and here you are doing, take us through what your desire to, to help others and how you've used your bike riding to enhance that. Um, 
I mean, I'd love to like say that, you know, my whole purpose is to make the world a better place. And like, <laughs> um, that's what drives, you know, me in hard moments. But I think that's not true. <laughs> you know, like, I think, um, like I want to have as big an impact as I can because of the position I'm in. Um, and I think it doesn't take a lot of inconvenience to, to kind of facilitate, you know, raising, raising money for, for different things. Um, and we have like in the endurance community and, and in cycling in general, we have an amazing community of people who are very generous and who, uh, are willing to kind of get behind a cause. And so everything I've done is just kind of about mobilizing that community in, in a way that I think will have an impact. Right. Um, and I'm not someone who has like a very broad set of skills, you know, like I'm, I'm a bike rider. I'm, I'm like good at that. And that's the one thing I know, um, that I can do. And, you know, the, the more epic it is, the more people who will engage with it, just, you know, that's human nature. Um, so yeah, that's kind of, I guess the process I've been through in doing those things. It's not, um, you know, there's so many causes out there that like, it's, it's hard to like, you know, identify how you can help. But I think if you in a position where you can help, I'm just trying to start, I mean, now pretty late in my career, I kind of realized that you're like, wow, we could actually do a lot more than, you know, like the role of a professional athlete, um, is kind of, it's been pigeonholed to this like small sort of entertainment in a way. Um, but I think there is a much bigger impact we could have because of the position we're in. Um, so yeah, like everything I've done has been, um, you know, heavily facilitated by the people I've surrounded myself with as well. We deserve just as much credit and it's just been about like, all right, we're mobilizing people that we have already within our team to set up pages and do research on different charities and where this money can go and then maximizing media exposure so that the basically that the end result is I'm just doing a bike ride and then we can approach it in a way that's similar to maximizing performance, but it's like, no, let's maximize the impact we can have to raise money for a course. Um, and it's pretty amazing to see when you have a group of people who have this, like we have a, a, an amazing group of people who are very talented at what they do and everything's being focused towards performance. Um, and then if you shift that focus really quickly in another direction, you still have a really talented group of people who are also very capable of, you know, having an impact in a different way. So it's just kind of reallocating those resources. Um, and we're all doing similar things that aren't out of our ballpark, you know, uh, it's just kind of coordinating that. Um, and yeah, it's ultimately like personally, it's very rewarding um, because 
it does give you more purpose beyond like your own selfish kind of exploits. Um, and, you know, I love the fact that I can do the things I like to do and then as a byproduct of that have, you know, an impact on people who aren't as lucky, you know, as myself. Um, but, you know, it's not <sighs> – it's not a huge sacrifice, you know. Um, there's so many people out there who do dedicate their lives to causes who, you know, sacrifice so much. Um, but the the impact they can have is is smaller because they don't have as big a platform, right? So um, that's like, yeah, I guess my pro- thought process behind it. But going forward, I'd love to do like a, as much as I can, really. Um, and it's currently kind of about juggling everything at one time, but I like to think there's a point where once the the competitive part of my you know writing experience is done, that I can really hone in on that and um, see you know what kind of impact I have can have and make more sacrifice sacrifices myself in enabling those impacts but yeah right now. you can't sell yourself short either i know you're pretty humble about it but you raised seven hundred thousand, i think aud for from the old tour probably more um with continued donations it was what 400 500 euro um you're you jumped straight away into the um crisis in ukraine and rode from germany to the ukraine border and raised two hundred thousand straight away there you've done you know smaller more individual things um and i think that has to be one mentioned uh, too, but does that give you any extra drive? Cause I don't feel like you need it, but when you're on the alt tour and you're raising money and you're struggling, is that ever a place you go to for motivation going, Oh, there's people watching. Um, like- um, no, I think like for my own, uh, like I think it's good to have an awareness of it. And if you can bring that into your purpose, like it helps, but um kind of going back to the motivations thing i don't think you can have something like this my motivation is still has to be something internal um like there has to be something that i'm latching onto that i'm doing it for some reason that drives me to do it um for all those reasons that like that's just kind of the way my mental process works um and i think if you feel like uh backed into a corner by it in a way because it can happen like um then it, it can complicate things so but i think like you kind of inviting that purpose along on on your own purpose if that makes sense it really does what what about um the the colorado trail um ride that you've done two times now it's 849 kilometers up as high and as altitude as you can get across ultra uh, Colorado um, mountain trail. You said that that's probably, and I would love to know if this is true, that the hardest one you've done um, mentally. In in that situation, you rode for, in the latest attempt, you rode for three days, 10 hours, 15 minutes. You had a total of 12 hours sleep across those three days. You're just trying to get through it. You got the course record for it and you've spoken about how you are so fatigued and tired that you're hallucinating. So you're very logical in a lot of the examples you've given so far about how you work through problems. But how do you get through that when you are in survival mode? You're literally 
hallucinating. You know, you, you can't logically talk your way through things some of those times and your brain would, would probably be going to full survival mode where it's just telling you to stop. Like, so so how do you get through that that extremeness and, and is there a point where you probably should stop when, when it's gone that far? Yeah, I think um, like that's kind of, there's a few things to unpack with that. Like, um, I think the, the, the deeper the extreme get, the higher those peaks and troughs become. Um, so like it becomes way more of a roller coaster and like you have to be able to adapt really quickly and the overwhelming lows have a tendency to make you want to stop a lot more. Um, like they, they start to like not just aid your ability to carry on at the pace. You're like, they just kind of stop you from making any progress. Um, so, and, and you get more emotional, I think the, the further, into an effort you get um so that it it requires all the same management as everything else but just on a much more extreme kind of level um and for me when it gets really extreme i have to like i'll start to lean on things i have or haven't done right so for example the first time i did colorado trail i did very little research I knew I'd only packed like an emergency bivy and a small sleeping bag. And like, I kind of was like, all right, well, I have to ride through this night because it's too cold to stop. Right. And you kind of fall straight onto those things of like, oh, well, I don't have. So I learned a lot through that first time. So the second time I was doing it, I'm like, okay, I have everything I need. Like I carried twice as much stuff because I was like, if I need to stop, and camp anywhere i can do it and sleep and i'll be happy i can sleep in that tent i've got enough food i've got more than enough food for 40 hours like at any time like and i'm comfortable enough now in these surroundings that i I, if things go sideways here i'm not worried you know whereas the first time around because i knew i was underprepared you start to lean into that and then that really unravels you you know, um, in terms of like the, so I guess like this comes back to being prepared, right. And comfortable in that situation, which requires experience because the first time you push through a night and you're in uncharted territories, like you're never really sure what's going to happen. Um, so yeah, that's more of just like, you're like knowing you're like, okay, I've done this before, um, or something similar to this. And, even though this seems like it's the end of the world right now, or like this is all really hard. It's like, it's actually just the same as what you've been doing. Um, It's just, you're a bit more emotional about it. Um, In terms of the hallucination stuff, like it's very, um, at least for me. And I think for a lot of people I've spoken to, it, it comes on very slowly and it's never like, it's never gone to a point where I've been like confused or um, not really. So basically you start for me, it's always around like 30 to 40 hours. You start to see like, I call it, it's like an illusion. Well, that's what it's called. Um, it's not a, a hallucination. It's just like, 
your your brain's kind of getting tired, so you'll see something that uh, is say a tree, but your your brain kind of makes like a shortcut that's incorrect, and you see like a person or something, and then you kind of look and you're like, oh wait, it's a person, and then on reflection, you're like, wait, that's no, it's definitely a tree, right? Um, and that can kind of last up to like I don't know seven eight hours. Um, and it's fine, right? Because there's, you just, it's very, once you understand what's happening, you're like, oh, it's just my brain's tired. It's making like mistakes basically. Um, but it's not that I'm seeing something that's there and I'm going to like do something dangerous. It's just like, oh, I keep thinking these trees are people. And then it, that happens more, more to like, you just kind of keep seeing the trees as people or something. Um, and then, you're still aware that they're trees, but you keep seeing them as people. <laughs> and then there comes a point when you're like, you keep looking at it and you keep seeing the thing that's not there. Does that make sense? And you, but you're still aware it's not there. And then when it switches to like a full hallucination, that's when you, you think it's there and it's not there <laughs> at all. Right. And that's like for it me, that, make much it, sense, it's a, yeah, it's like a bit of paranoia. It's just, yeah. but there's a very clear distinction there. And whenever I get to that last point, I stop because then it's dangerous. Right. Um, and you just have to accept that, like, that's if I push beyond this, it's just risk taking, um, which, like, for me, there's no reward in that. Right, because no, it's just risk taking. It doesn't involve any preparation. It doesn't involve any experience. It's just like, well, now you just kind of lost it a bit, and you're just continuing on. Um, and it's just like it's reckless, right? And on something like the Colorado Trail, like there's no place for that, I don't think, because the consequences are too high, right? Um, so, yeah, like. The, the, like the first times that happened to me, like when I hallucinated, um, it was like, it's a really interesting experience to have. Um, like, because your brain's acting in a really strange way that it doesn't in any other real situation. Um, and you've just brought it on purely through um, physical exertion, right? And, and, and like lack of sleep. Um, and you can kind of discover a lot about yourself too, because like, there's a lot of like kind of deep dark things that just sort of underride that feeling when you're there and you're kind of left stripped back to, you know, very much just you and you can feel very, for me anyway, you feel like very alone and like, yeah, it's, it's kind of like a deep dive into yourself a bit. Um, so the first few times I did, I got a lot out of that. Um, but increasingly I just go to the same places. So there's not, nothing more for me to learn there. And, um, I also don't think it's the best thing for your body to do, you know, um, like repeatedly. So like during Colorado trail, yeah, I slept like, I think the, the first time I stopped, I slept four hours and slept really well. So then I was kind of back to zero. And then the next night I slept like two hours. I was going to sleep four again, but there was like a, uh, an animal. So I like kept going. And then I slept again on the trail for like half an hour because I knew I needed it. Um, and that time just literally just like lay down. Um, and that was awful. Like I didn't have any huge 
hallucinations. I wasn't pushing that. Like, I mean, I started to have like illusions, but nothing um, crazy. It, towards the end, I did have one half an hour period that was really weird. Um, just where you have like a, when it first comes night again and like the shadows start to fall weird and sometimes you feel like you're stuck in the loop, <laughs> you know, like you feel like you're like, wait up. Am I just like, how much time has passed? And you look at like, time starts to pass weird and you start to feel a little bit. Um, and then I, I always do like my own kind of checks on myself in a way. Um, What's and, my name? What's, what's my birthday? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then if I'm actually worried about it, and see, at that point, I was pretty close to the end. So, but like, and I had like some phone signal. So I normally, I always just call my dad just to have a chat. Yeah. And not like, oh, talk me through this. I always just like, oh, what, what are you up to? What's your day been? Whatever. And then I kind of gauge myself just on the <laughs> conversation, like how cognitive I am. Um, and so I, like, I was very intermittent and I think I dropped out, but I think I ended up making him more scared than he needed to be. But, <laughs> um, I knew at that point, I was like, I'm good. I've got like two hours to finish. I can make it here. Um, but yeah, I think the furthest I ever went down that path was like at Badlands because after the race finishes, I made it to the finish fine. Cause I did no sleep for like 40 hours or something, 40 something hours. And for the last like six hours, I could like hear music and like time was passing really strange. But, and then towards it, like there's this last climb and I thought there was someone chasing me up there. <laughs> and like, still, if I go back to that memory now, there was someone chasing me up yeah, there. Yeah. Um, but it was like half an hour before the finish. So I finished and then I didn't realize you had to ride 20K back to town. So then I rode to town and then I was started to really lose it. And like I got to where we were staying, but the door was locked because it was, there was like a film crew there who we were staying with and they were still out somewhere. And so I was like sat at the front and there was like a park down the road. And then I thought there was people in the park trying to get me. Like, <laughs> And then I was like, oh, shit, like they're going to come and take my stuff. And I like took my shoes off because I was like ready to run away. And then <laughs> I got inside and like I was awake for maybe another half hour or whatever, just like, you know, washing stuff. And, um, <laughs> and then when I went to have a shower finally, I mean, I picked up the like um, conditioner bottle and it like – in my hand like turned into like a a duck that was like had like an angry mouth and i was just like whoa this is like i'm like if i was I would, if i was still out on the on the road i would be very alarmed at this yeah. you know um we're very so, alarmed listening to this um that, yeah exactly that someone can go this deep um, yeah continuously but, and repeatedly it's yeah but i think like in terms of the sleep deprivation stuff, um, like I'm going to cut back on that a bit because I, I, I don't like – there's less to learn there um, and I'm aware that like like this after Colorado Trail, I was very kind of conscious because I had to turn around and do like a 
two-hour mountain bike race for the Lifetime Series, like I think it was the next weekend, um, and trying to like get yourself physically ready to, to, to do that. And with just like my mental capacity for that next week was so low. Mm. Um, like I couldn't focus on conversations and like there was just stuff that I was like, oh, I don't really like that feeling you know huge um, consequences aren't there for yeah exactly and you realize that, like if that's something i'm feeling then there's something that's happening um so yeah I, i'm kind of less i'm less excited about pushing that <laughs> than i was a few years ago Good. sorry did i did i say yourself short there um you did six hours or just over six hours of sleep over three days instead of 12 uh yeah it would be like that wow. but to give you any i think like the there's people who've done it on like two, yeah, and taken four days. It's crazy. Yeah, I couldn't. I, I wouldn't be able to function. I, yeah. I wouldn't be able to enjoy it like that. Like I, I felt like I had the minimum amount of sleep that made it so I could function nicely in a way I liked and still be conscious enough to enjoy what I was doing. Um, yeah, and because yeah i guess like in terms of that route and the amount of sleep i had it was like pretty conservative <laughs> yeah um, but yeah it's unbelievable insight um let's finish off the chat by kind of talking about yeah your, your plans going forward because you you're going to avoid sleep deprivation that's one um hmm. but you're not you're no longer um contracted to ef with the road team you're purely mm-hmm. um off-road uh you've got a yeah. coach again you're doing structured training again which is a big change for you so so what's the plans next what are your what are your goals and what's got you excited uh i'm going to cape epic um next month and that's been like the kind of whole focus of my off season uh, i've done that race once before and have since wanted to go back and um like test myself there i've been doing more and more on the mountain bike the last few years and it's like that's kind of the absolute pinnacle of marathon mountain biking so go there and just see what I'm capable of um, and just like maximize whatever I have. Um, I'm really excited for that. And then beyond that, I want to, oh, I'm going to race the like US Lifetime Series again. So there's like four gravel races, three mountain bike races spread out over the year. Um, they're like all really great events and things I've really enjoyed. Um, but there's still a few of those races that I haven't been able to get out the performance I think I can have in them. Um, so like I'm kind of going in very focused on those. Um, and then probably an ultra here or there in there, um, which, yeah, you, be a bit of fun. <laughs> you did mention to us on the way back from the warning that you were pretty keen on the ride across America. Is that also still a focus? Yeah, that's a plan. Um, I tend to like, see, for me to switch to the longer stuff is, is easier in a way. Um, so I never really focus any of my training around like that. Um, I think the biggest thing for that would be I have to spend time on a uh, like a time trial bike because um, that's kind of what that takes. Um, so that'll be like a bit of a consideration. Um, but yeah, like that's a, that'll be a hard undertaking that, um, 
require I mean I know if I start thinking about it now it's not going to help me <laughs> so I need to like once I get within a couple of months I'll start honing in on that a bit um, but yeah for the moment that still feels like a far off plan <laughs> it'll sneak out pretty quickly I'm curious in terms of the lifetime series because um, we've spoken to um, Dill Johnson on the podcast before and we love his content have you had much to do with him or many chats with him because he kind of comes from a very opposite approach to you in terms of he loves the structure and the science um, yet you guys are racing against each other in the same event so have you um, yeah, had a chat to him and he's a, has he quizzed you about your own training methods and style uh, not really, no. Like I, I, I think I've met him once or twice just at races. Um, but yeah, I think um, there's definitely like that's what makes those races interesting, right? Because there are people who come from a background of road racing or, you know, like some people are really trying to optimize equipment, performance, whatever. Some people are trying to have a good time because they've spent their whole career you know, stressing in a peloton, like, um, which is, it's good. Like it's a nice kind of group of people that like, um, but I think the thing I like the most about that, those kind of races is like those marginal gains and that they count for pretty little, you know, in my opinion. Um, like I think like in the end of the day, you get out there and you, you kind of race hard and you need to know how to drive your bike as well as be pretty fit and um, also be pretty resilient, like mentally that gets you pretty far. Um, so, like, I think there's a lot of different ways to win, but I, I like the fact that it's kind of old school racing in a way. Not much tactics. You just get out there and go hard and see what you've got, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I suppose the one thing I always love to ask anybody we have on is looking back at what you've done since you were a young kid and that – super enthusiastic uh i want to conquer the world when i was a teenager looking back now would Lockie do something different now looking back then um if you put yourself uh, now that you've no, experienced I mean, everything what would you do no because i'm very happy with where i'm at now then i know if i've made any other decisions um like there's a lot of things i could do differently as a junior if i wanted to be um performing now as like a an elite level road cyclist i know that like i made a lot of mistakes um and i would if that was the the outcome i wanted yeah for sure i would change a bunch um but ultimately that's a path i'm kind of glad now i didn't take um so yeah i wouldn't wouldn't change anything you know mistakes and all (laughs) To finish, I just want to say I, I know that one of your goals is to um, use your cycling to try and have as best impact on people uh, as you can and whether that's through raising money or whether that's just through showing people to look at cycling in a different light or just to experience cycling in a different way. And I think um, if anyone listens to you talk, that just happens straight away. You're the way you can get people to just think about enjoying cycling again and um and yeah, I really, I really resonate with that message of um, experience it the way you want to. And uh, at Travello, we know we have um, very similar um, principles in terms of you've got to love the process and it's got, you've got to be intrinsically motivated, especially if you're training for a, a half Ironman or Ironman because you're not going to get there if you, unless it's, it's coming from yourself. Um, but at the same time, we've got quite contrary um, 
uh, ethos is, I guess, in terms of um, the age group uh, has limited time to train. So they've got to be very structured and very, very efficient in what they do. But I think there's such value in, in what you're saying in that making sure you're, you're finding enjoyment in your training. And I think you're, you're really spreading that message well. And I know you probably get a lot of people telling you that they, they, they see their bike riding a different way now. And um, I definitely see it a different way after listening to you talk. And um, I, th- I think that must be pretty gratifying to you from a personal level to hear that people are back on the bike again because they've been motivated by the thereabouts films or um, they, they see the challenges that you're doing. You're riding the ultra by yourself um, and that's motivated people to, to enjoy endurance riding again and enjoy getting the most out of, the, out of themselves. So um, I think that's awesome from you and I'm sure you, pr- you probably get a lot of that out of that personally, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I guess for me, like cycling's given me so much and I really think it's like the nicest way you can spend your days, <laughs> you know? Um, and I just want to share that with as many people as I can. Um, so I think like, you know, anyone who's going through their training process, like just being sure that you're enjoying it, you know, like it has to be fun. Um, or you have to be feeling gratified for every time you kind of step onto your bike or you, you go for your run or whatever it is. Um, like you shouldn't be motivated by the outcome. Like it should, the whole process should be really fun and, and, and fulfilling. Um, and if it's not, then you just change something, you know, it doesn't mean it's not for you. It just means you just need to change your approach. Um, so yeah. That's an unreal way to finish. Uh, massive conversation here. Thanks for staying on the line, Lockie, and thanks for giving no us so much kind of profound insight. We, we really, really appreciate it. No, no worries, guys. Fantastic, mate. Brilliant, brilliant insight to uh, to exactly what we're trying to get our everyday listener to understand that you know there you have to have a passion for what you do, and if you do have a passion, you will enjoy it so much more than if you're doing it because of other reasons and. And the, ba- the balance in life is so key. We've said it many times. If you can get your balance right, then you'll have fun on your bike because everything else in your life is going well as well. So yeah. um, so you've brought that message across loud and clear and some of the some of the detail you've gone into of the mindset, and that's really key to a lot of what holds us back, isn't it, that uh, we, we just don't have our mind right. Um, physically, we could be so well prepared, but we're weak mentally, and mm-hmm. I'm including myself in that. And and we we can learn a lot from you know knowing how far you can actually go with your body and and your mind has to go along for the journey yeah yeah exactly well put that's it for this episode thanks everyone for listening as always we hope you got a lot out of it and we'll see you on the next one 